This week, Mary Shelley, the unlikely author of a horror classic. Are you a writer yourself? Nothing substantial. And what, may I ask, would you constitute as substantial? Anything that curdles the blood and quickens the beatings of the heart. He's back with a partner. Now it's Ant-Man and the Wasp. We'll have you home by lunch. I'm going to come with you guys. Great job back there. Thanks. Are you going to say the same thing to me? Good job. Thank you. And Ideal Home allows two comedians to explore the new diversity. I'm concerned that artichoke soup is sad, but if we use this as a base, we can make individual sformato. Come on! Sformato and Limoges? Aren't we gay enough? Hello, I'm Simon Morris, fighting off an unpleasant cold, and at the end of this show, one of us will be standing. It's a frequent complaint about movie stars that what they're doing isn't really acting at all. After all, most of them are usually just playing themselves, goes the argument. Well, I suppose it comes down to what you call good acting. There's the old-fashioned barnstorming approach of the likes of Al Pacino or Sir Ian McKellen. Certainly the intense method of Daniel Day-Lewis and Robert De Niro has its fans. And it's undeniable that sheer versatility is certainly impressive. When will the lesson be learned? You cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth! I take full responsibility. Really? Really, yes, sir. Watching Gary Oldman playing Winston Churchill was a throwback to the days of Peter Sellers and Alec Guinness and the well-known phrase, the man with a thousand faces. In fact, these days, that title is more likely to be claimed by women like Kate Blanchett, Meryl Streep and Tilda Swinton. But is versatility all it's cracked up to be? Don't we expect our favourite stars to be a certain way? I have taken you for wife, Bortai, and I take your dowry. Tomorrow in Urga, I make gift of it to Wang Khan. Seize Urga. And bleed my strength in siege of Wang Khan City. That's John Wayne playing, believe it or not, Genghis Khan, though you'll notice he still plays him like John Wayne. Modern one-note stars like Tom Cruise, Sandra Bullock, Melissa McCarthy and George Clooney occasionally try to branch out, but their audience rarely thanks them for it. A truth we could see if we had, but... If we had... Faith! 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 Cut! The fact is, the reason a star becomes successful is we like what they do, whether they're Cary Grant, Marilyn Monroe, The Rock or Jennifer Lawrence. We think that's pretty much what they're like in real life, and we don't want to be reminded how much pretending is going on up on our screens. I hope you're not thinking of staying here. I sure want to. I'm sure you do. I got a place in Westwood near school. Shouldn't you go to school on the East Coast? I hear girls at NYU aren't all particular. <laughs> you're funny. The reason I mentioned typecasting is the appearance this week of two movies featuring the likeable comedy star Paul Rudd, who's been essentially giving us a version of himself since his career was launched playing easygoing Josh in the hit comedy Clueless. Since then, Rudd has played slowly ageing versions of that character. Nice, well-meaning, a bit passive-aggressive, and generally third or fourth banana. Until Ant-Man. So, how long have you been Ant-Man again? 
not long. It just sort of happened. I wish I could fight bad guys like you. Like many other actors, Paul Rudd's career got a massive boost playing a Marvel Comics character. It certainly helps that the Ant-Man movies play to his strong suit, comedy. Ant-Man may be one of the dumbest characters in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, but Rudd makes it work for him. We unleashed something powerful. We have to stop her. If you want to do something right, you make a list. One, we have to team up. Two, we're going to have to fight Ghost. Three, we're going to track down Ghost. That seems like it should be part of two. Two A. As well as Ant-Man and the Wasp, Rudd is allowed to branch out this week, playing the bad-tempered gay partner to Steve Coogan, another mostly one-role performer. They're certainly going for broken ideal home, though I'm curious to know how the gay community feels about it. Oh, hello, and good morning. Now, if you've never been invited to a ranchero breakfast... Well, it's like I a gay Butch Cassidy, except not Butch. But first, a movie directed by a filmmaker who made headlines a couple of years ago by simply existing. Haifa Al-Mansur was the first female director in Saudi Arabia. And after the acclaimed Arab film Wajda, she makes her Hollywood debut with Mary Shelley. Rid yourself of the thoughts and words of other people, Mary. Find your own voice. Next time you run off three ghost stories, take me with you. The real-life Mary Shelley was remarkable for many reasons. The daughter of famously free-thinking writers Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin, she eloped with the well-known poet and rake Percy Bysshe Shelley while still in her teens. But Mary Shelley is most famous as the writer of one of the great horror novels, Frankenstein. Don't you recognise Victor Frankenstein? This is no ghost story. It chilled me to the bone. You must get your story published, Mary. The young Mary, Mary Godwin at the time, is played by American star on the rise Elle Fanning. She was in The Beguiled last year. And she's supported by other strong young actresses to watch, including Belle Powley, one of the best things in a comedy romp called A Royal Night Out a couple of years ago, and Game of Thrones' Maisie Williams. I feel a frustration, a constant whisper that I am no closer to achieving my dreams. I miss that. That's Shelley. Beautiful, isn't he? The male co-stars seem to suffer by comparison, despite Douglas Booth and Tom Sturridge threatening to be prettier than the ladies, playing shallow, glam-rock versions of, respectively, Shelley and Lord Byron. Just how old are you, then? Old enough to know why you are asking. I'm 16. When I met you, I felt alive. Come away with me. Are you really involved with that whoremonger? I have a fire in my soul, and I will no longer allow you or anyone else to contain it. Shelley meets Mary at an uncle's stately home, and they chat about literature, which back in the early 1800s seems to have been the equivalent of pop music. Certainly Shelley is treated like a rock star everywhere he goes, and Mary finds herself strangely drawn to him. Are you a writer yourself? Nothing substantial. And what, may I ask, would you constitute as substantial? Anything that curdles the blood and quickens the beatings of the heart. 
Meanwhile, her half-sister Claire, played by Belle Powley, has struck up an acquaintance with an even bigger rock star, Lord Byron, heavily made up and looking like a member of Duran Duran. He invites Claire, Mary and Percy to Geneva for fun and free thinking on the continent. We've been invited to Geneva by Lord Byron. Would you like to join me in the parlour, Miss Godwin? I have no quarrel with you becoming lovers. Do you wish to be with someone else? One question that's left slightly open in Mary Shelley is how much of a living you could make from your pen at the time. Certainly Byron, Shelley and the slightly older Coleridge were household names and cashed in on their glamour with a string of impressionable young women. What is life if it doesn't have love? It's called the nightmare. There were other forms of literature, of course. Mary devoured gothic novels and ghost stories, while her father wrote learned essays from the back of his struggling bookshop. But it seemed the most common source of income among the literary set was wealthy parents. What do you mean? But you're already married. We love each other. I don't need to be married. I told you your warped ideals would come back to haunt us. Mrs Godwin, please. We are only living by your beliefs. Mary runs off with Shelley despite discovering late in the day that he's already married with a six-year-old daughter. But Mary becomes disillusioned with the bohemian lifestyle, particularly when Shelley suggests a more open relationship. I no longer see the world and its works as they before appeared to me, and men appeared to me as monsters. All this rigmarole is clearly intended to point out that Mary Shelley's greatest hit is not the mere blood-curdler we've become used to after a century of horror B-movies about Baron Frankenstein and his monstrous creation. As much as anything, it's a novel about abandonment, and the point that director and writer Haifa Al-Mansur wants to make is that only a woman could have written it. I've never read such a perfect encapsulation of what it feels to be abandoned. I seethed with your monster's rage. It lasted for his revenge. Because it was my own. Despite its best intentions, Mary Shelley does clunk a little when it's attempting to suggest how relevant the story is today. I was more interested in how young everyone was at the time of the famous night in Geneva when the ghost story competition was suggested. We are each to write a ghost story. It's a competition. The woman is not intelligent enough to form ideas of her own. What's wrong with you? You, Miss Godwin, have the chance to prove me wrong. Byron and Shelley were in their early 20s at the height of their fame, while Mary was barely that. But apart from reflecting that, there's not enough for the actors to do, aside from Elle Fanning. And frankly, some of the other actors aren't up to what's required of them. My lord, it is an honour. There is a smile hidden inside of you, I can see it. And I hope that before long, I can coax it outside of <laughs> Certainly, any parallels between the burgeoning feminism of the time and the position of women today are a bit of a stretch. And it's hard to care enough about these characters to make that effort. In short, a bit of a waste. If I had not learned to fight through the anguish, I would not have found this voice. 
My choice has made me who I am, and I regret nothing. When The Avengers Infinity War came out recently, the ending was a shock, not least because it left a lot of characters' fate up in the air, characters who had their own starring vehicles coming out shortly. And first cab off the rank was the new film starring size-altering superhero Ant-Man. It's called Ant-Man and the Wasp. I seem to mess it up almost every time. Maybe you just need someone watching your back. Hi. Like a partner. So, how will this episode accommodate the last one? Will we pretend it all happened before the Avengers events, or in another time zone, or dimension, or that it's all a joke? Well, it seems for much of the time the answer is all of the above. Scott Lang, former burglar, now part-time superhero, is under house arrest after answering the call to join in Captain America's Civil War. I just have one question. When Cap needed help... If I'd asked you, would you have come? I guess we'll never know. But if you had, you'd have never been caught. If you can't remember the finer details of the Ant-Man films, or indeed any of the details, the brains of the outfit are Scott's would-be girlfriend Hope and Hope's scientist dad Hank Pym, played at full crusty by a rather good Michael Douglas. Thanks to you, we had to run. We're still running. Let's go. Hank and Hope allowed Scott to test drive the first Ant-Man suit, which allows its wearer to alter size up and down at an alarming rate. But it was only a matter of time before Hope got her own rather upgraded suit. She's now the Wasp. Hold on. You gave her wings and blasters. So I take it you didn't have that tech available for me? No, I did But she and her dad are still on the run and looking for more equipment to allow them to enter something called the Quantum Realm. It seems Hank absentmindedly left Hope's mother there 20-odd years ago. But for this, they'll need Ant-Man to come out of retirement. I'd love to help you, but I'm under house arrest. We'll have you home by lunch. I'm going to come with you guys. Great job back there. Thanks. Are you going to say the same thing to me? Good job. Thank you. Having re-established the characters, Paul Rudd as Scott and Evangeline Lilly as Hope in particular, strike sparks off each other in the approved Hollywood manner, we await the plot. And it's not a million miles away from the Avengers parallel plot, which you may remember is essentially the end of the world. I had a dream. The dream. What do you mean? I saw the end of everything. The only chance you've got is both of you. You know, I'm an Avenger now. Yeah, so you've mentioned. But Scott has a dream. He hooks up with Hank and Hope for a wild ride with bad guys on their trail, the police behind them, and flitting in and out of focus, a mysterious ghost-like figure called The Ghost. You have no idea what I'm capable of. She just wanted to give me a hug. Wish me luck. Really? Yeah. Watch this. 
The charm of Ant-Man is, unlike the alpha males who mostly make up the Avengers, he's not exactly the sharpest tool in the kit. In fact, often his young daughter is smarter than he is, and so this cuts down the number of times we get lost in the plot. If we need to know something, chances are Scott does too. The only chance you've got is both of you. Ant-Man and the Wasp teaming up. Follow my lead. But unlike his obvious comic rival, the X-Men's jokey nemesis Deadpool, there's nothing smirky, smartass or R-rated about Ant-Man. All he wants is to go straight, to hang out with his daughter and not let his friends down more than he can help. What? Why do I have such a small desk? Well, because you weren't there when we were choosing desks. You snooze, you lose. Well, I was under house arrest. Yeah. You know what? This isn't even a desk. This is garbage. You found this outside amongst garbage. I got it at a rummage sale. So you save money on my desk? Guys! Hope, please. We need to focus, all right? In other words, unlike too many comic book movies these days, Ant-Man and the Wasp is unashamedly, you know, for kids. Kids and their parents. It's funny, it's got great people in it, and even accommodates the hardcore Marvel fans by suddenly incorporating some Avengers plot twists as the credits roll. Also, we have to save the world. That's major. We can't forget that. There will come a time, I know, when the Marvel Cinematic Universe will become so complex and unwieldy that it will cease to make any sense at all, and all the costume superheroes will blur into each other beyond any hope of untangling. We're going to die. Hey, what I miss? We were just tiny! But it won't be an Ant-Man movie that does it. A comic book movie series that can include a fight on a Thomas the Tank Engine train set and a drum-playing ant is in no danger of taking itself too seriously. And it also has a laudable sense of how big or small an entertaining movie need be. How big did you get? My record? 21 feet. You? 65 feet. 65. If you two are finished comparing sizes... 65. Well, now that the world has opened up to incorporate the full range of humanity, straight, gay, trans and the rest, Hollywood has come to the party to cash in on, I mean, support fully, the LGBT movement. Oh, Manny, you old cockhound. I didn't see you there. Cut! You can't say cockhound on basic cable. Do you guys do this at home? Oh, no, we don't get along this well at home. To be fair, films like Ideal Home, starring Steve Coogan and, once again, Paul Rudd as a rather unlikely gay couple, aren't exactly breaking new ground. Gay couples have been around for years. Brokeback Mountain in 2005, My Beautiful Laundrette in 1985, Staircase back in 1969, starring Richard Burton and Rex Harrison, and all the rest. Hi, I'm with Child Protective Services. I'm just going to look around. Would both of you come this way, please? Sex Wars, Phantom Ass. What they do is take recognised titles and give it a bit of a cheeky twist. Bareback Mountain. That's unusual in that the source material is also gay. 
But Ideal Home is rather lighter on the earnest navel-gazing and heavier on the gags. The couple work in a cable TV cookery show. Coogan plays the unlikely named Erasmus, the show's front person, while Rudd plays Paul, the director. They've clearly been together a long time. I am indeed. I love your books and your TV show. I'm concerned that artichoke soup is sad, but if we use this as a base, we can make individual sformato. Come on! Sformato and Limoges? Aren't we gay enough? You'll notice that this film is not going to let little things like taste get in its way as it trots out more gay jokes than you can shake a stick at if that's your idea of a good time. And then one day, a ten-year-old boy arrives at their door. Dear Erasmus, this is your grandson. You have a grandson? It's unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, look, I've had no work done. He's the son of Erasmus's own son from a previous lifestyle. Bo has been thrown in jail, so the boy, who seems rather secretive about his name, has nowhere else to go but the care of the world's most irresponsible grandfather. We can't have a kid. We are kids. Do I have a sense of play? Oh, uh, yeah. Erasmus may be the biological grandfather, but it's obvious that the more responsible Paul will be required to do most of the heavy lifting in this new relationship. He protests that neither he nor Erasmus is remotely suited for looking after anything as demanding as a new family member. Where's the father? Well, according to the note, he's in jail. So he's moving in? We can't have a kid. We couldn't even handle that Yorkshire Terrier. Thank God for that coyote. Problem solved. Ideal Home has fallen between two stools among the critics. They generally support the idea of a gay farce, but possibly not acted by two straight comedians. These are sensitive, possibly oversensitive times when it comes to portraying diversity. I live with Paul and Erasmus. They are gay. There are some words you should never use when you are talking to someone who is gay. Never say Bill. To the credit of Paul Rudd and Steve Coogan and to writer-director Andrew Fleming, the intent may be broad comedy, but none of the characters are belittled unless you think that running a trashy TV cooking show is demeaning. You make me look like an idiot in front of a kid? Kid's got a name. He's caught with... Sorry, what was your name? Why don't we go to a video arcade and then get some ice cream? Or the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum and afterwards have a nice salad. The gags are generally good enough, its heart's in the right place, and any messages in Ideal Home are unlikely to topple society, even in America's currently reactionary times. Rudd and Coogan eventually make a surprisingly convincing couple, even if the film is nothing more than a moderately entertaining way to spend an afternoon. I'm going to be out of here before New Year's. The boy has settled in here in Santa Fe. He's my boy. What if I want to stay? Listen to me. You're not going anywhere. We won't let it happen. It really is the simple things in life that make you happy. As a curious side issue, it's interesting that Steve Coogan has made so few inroads into the American market, despite being so big back home. Possibly his brand of irony is one of those that simply don't cross the Atlantic. Perhaps Paul Rudd can find Steve Coogan a villain spot in the next Ant-Man. Sarcastic Man or something. And on that helpful bit of career advice, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week.